This episode of the Linux Action Show is brought to you by DigitalOcean and by Ting. Go to last.ting.com and save $25 off your first device or your first month of service. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 323. My name is Chris. My name is Matt. Hey, Matt. Good morning to you. Good morning. Are you ready for me to tell folks about the big show today? Absolutely. Matt, it is a big show today. We just got back from OSCON 2014 in Portland, Oregon, and we walked away with some great interviews. We're going to play three of them for you today. Number one is Mozilla's chief developer advocate. Number two is the executive director of the Software Conservancy Foundation. And then number three, you all know him, you all love him, Chris Tabona, the open source advocate at Google. He talks all things Android, open Open source, Linux, even iOS, all these things are in a pretty lengthy interview, all coming up today. Very nice. Plus, in the news segment, we've got some great news for UK citizens, and we had an exclusive interview with the LibreOffice Foundation about the great news, and we had an interview with Rackspace about how they're utilizing CoreOS. So if you're keeping track, I think that's five interviews we're going to roll for you in today's Linux Action Show, plus our picks and the feedback and all of the regular weekly news. It's a huge show this week. just ridiculous too much show too Too much much show show. too much show so why don't we get started with our picks because these are one of my favorite things every single week and the audience has been sending in their runs linux so that's where we're going to start this week and get ready for this one matt the robot soccer team tech united eindhoven i think is how you say it eindhoven yeah eindhoven we'll go with that eindhoven eindhoven runs linux uh so this is uh, coming in from steph and he says the university where i studied mechanical engineering has a robot soccer team called the Tech United Eindhoven, and he uh, links us to them. The team has now reached the semifinals of RoboCup 2014 in Brazil, and he includes a photo of the team there managing their robots uh, with Linux. You can see uh, there is a, it's actually, I did a little eye spying, Matt, and I surmised Mm. it's uh, Ubuntu GNOME Edition. It looks like it could be. Yeah, you see there's a little GNOME menu bar up there with the Ubuntu logo. It could be. Maybe XFCE with a good-looking theme, too. I'd be interested to know the teaming names. I mean, like, are we talking, like, iRobot versus the Robocop? United Eindhoven! Uh, you want to see a little bit of a, uh, the robo- robots yeah. in action playing? Okay, here we go. Strijd was tegen het Chinese Nubot. We openen met een kans, maar de keeper van de Chinese houdt deze bal mooi buiten. they're going to kick it. Watch, he's going to go up there with the ball. He kicks it. Dan gaan we naar een vrije trap. Een typische situatie voor een team 3, waarna een lobbal komt. Look at that. Oh, oh missed the goal. Crazy. Missed the goal. So they got goalie, so they run around and Dude. <laughs> that is awesome. Look at this. look at sometimes they really book too. Look at they can really book sometimes. Yeah. I need a robot. Oh, goalie block. You see that goalie blocked the ball. Nice. Now I don't know if this is uh, I would actually watch this. I don't know. I mean would you watch this over regular soccer? <laughs> I I, I don't watch regular sports. I guess there's robots here so I can kinda of get a short circuit experience. Linux running robots too. Oh yeah. the robot got a goal. Oh, nice. So oh, here they are setting okay. up the robots. See they got these cool lights. They can they can pull up these things here and work on the wheels and the undercarriage and stuff. All wirelessly controlled by a Linux laptop. That is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the little uh, undercarriage lights are a nice touch. Chat room says this might be more entertaining than actual people playing soccer. That was my take. I mean, I'm not really a soccer sport hey, kind of guy. People so. don't have blue lights under their That's true. You know, wheels. if you had blue lights under their undercarriage, like like butt lights, I mean, I w- that'd probably be kind of cool. Right. Oh, look at, I just think it's so adorable the way they pass the ball between each other. How do they know? Oh, wow. That was a pretty great good power. Did, did you see how good that goalie blocked that ball? That was amazing. That's that's these robots are. Oh, it's got like a roll bar. Uh, the goalie does. It's like what this. Oh, oh, oh! Yikes! This is actually surprisingly uh, entertaining. <laughs> that is. Wild. Anyways, that's going on right now. The RoboCup 2014 in Brazil, and uh, Stefan viewer Stefan wrote that in and said his team's up there. That is just ridiculous. That's awesome. Cool. That's, oh man, that's really awesome, Stefan. Thanks for sending that in. And you see, Matt. 
once again, it just proves the robots don't need us. Yeah. Right? Although, although we did, uh, we are their masters for now. For Not now, change, obviously. For now, and, and of course, for now, a lot of them are being controlled by us, and probably should stay that way for a while. I don't know how long stay that's going to that, be. Stay away from that whole AI thing. Just, just stop with that. Just, just stop. okay. Imagine a world, mate. See these Linux laptops here. Imagine a yeah. world where the robots become self-aware. They check out the source code from GitHub. They modify it themselves to give them their own control. It just takes one anomaly, and then they submit a patch, and then somehow that group accepts the because maybe it adds some other fun, fun, fancy sure. functionality, thereby integrating robot independence via an open source merge. You know, I would take that a step further and say, look, okay, so let's say that one day you wake up and you're checking out Bugzilla or whatever it may be, <laughs> and it's like humans. And you're right. like, oh, Bug- okay, this isn't good. And, yeah. then, and then all of a sudden there's a patch being implemented, and the lights <laughs> shut off, and all hell just breaks loose. And yeah. you're thinking, oh, crap, it just got real. Deploy the human patch. I'm telling you, dude. Deploy the human patch. We don't, I don't want to be a bug. Hey, uh, we got a great, uh, two great picks. Oh, shoot. In fact, I forgot my pick. My pick's upstairs. Uh I'll have to go grab it. Okay. Uh, But we have two great picks. And uh, uh, the first one is going to help you with backups over SSH. First, I want to tell you about our first sponsor, and that's the great folks over at DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com right now. Go over there because we've got a special promo code for the month of July, and I want you to help us represent in July while you can. It's last July, L-A-S July. That'll get you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. Let me tell you a little bit about them. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting dedicated blah, blah, blah. I mean, you guys know all that. I've told you this a hundred times. Here's what you really need to know. DigitalOcean has the best interface to manage KVM virtual machines attached to SSD drives. We've now had people in their brand new London data center that have been able to spin up a DigitalOcean droplet in 21 seconds. DigitalOcean just launched a brand new London data center and... I can't tell you how exciting this is. For somebody who used to deploy servers for a living, as someone who used to provision servers for clients, the, the rate at which the innovation is now happening in this space is absolutely staggering. And I think we have to take a moment here and realize how key and how critical the incredible Linux technologies are responsible for this, like KVM, right? Like all of the improvements that have been made in the Linux kernel over the years. Companies like DigitalOcean can now go out there and give you the ability to spin up your own cloud server in seconds. And pricing plans start only $5 per month. That'll get you for $5 per month, you guys. For $5 per month, that'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. That's the hard numbers. But DigitalOcean wraps all that up with an incredible dashboard that's easy to use and super, super intuitive. It's amazing what they've been able to give you. What a few years ago would have taken me days and days, oh, yeah. and I would have been able to charge hundreds of dollars. And now, now with DigitalOcean, when Rekai comes to me and says, hey, Chris, I've got a crazy idea for a project, I say, okay, what's that? And in the past, we've been like, well, that'd be really nice if we had the resources to do that. Now it's, oh, well, I'll go spin up a DigitalOcean droplet. And because I can use that promo code last July, I'm going to get a $10 credit. I can try that for two months for absolutely free. That's insane. That is ridiculous. I mean, like, I just recently actually absorbed the last of my my credit and actually applied some funds. And what's cool is that you could you don't have to like wait to be debited. This is what I love is like sometimes I'll be like, you know, I'm going to throw ten bucks on there, so I just kind of got a buck. Yeah, I love that. Yes, it's so awesome. Right, and you know what's cool is you compare that with their hourly pricing too. So if you need Bingo. to do some testing, you need to run something for a while, you need to have multiple people be able to bang on that to make sure your code actually gets proper testing. That's the way to do it. You need to put up an own cloud server multiple people are going to use, or you want to have easy access when you're on the go. You want to set up a BitTorrent sync like Matt and I do. Oh, yes. Easy peasy. A quasal IRC server, so that way you're always connected to those important IRC rooms. 
a lot of open source collaboration happens in IRC, and you can always be connected by just having something running on your DigitalOcean droplet. There's more and more things you'll find that just give you more and more value out of your DigitalOcean droplet. I continually add new services. I was on the train ride down to OSCON, and I've installed Mosh on my DigitalOcean droplet. I had a tablet with me on the train using Wi-Fi, but the Wi-Fi came and went. So I used Mosh to connect into my DigitalOcean droplet, and I kept all of the things I needed persistence running there. And then when Mosh would handle those ups and downs in the connection, Activity, so I could always resume right back where I was working. And because my DigitalOcean droplet is connected to Tier 1 bandwidth and data centers all over the world, they have data centers in San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, New York, and now that brand new one in London. I was happening to connect. I have one in New York and I have one in San Francisco. I'm thinking about setting one up in London, too, just so that way I have a good spread for all of my data. Definitely. You know, it's just good disaster recovery sense. And so I was able to work out of the San Francisco droplet on the train using Mosh from my tablet. And that's like, I never, ever, like almost a year ago when I set up my DigitalOcean droplet, I never expected to be on a train needing to have hours nice. of connectivity up and down. And now I just had it because I have the option. The flexibility was there because I have a DigitalOcean droplet. And you can, too. Try it out for two months. Try out that new London data center and see what you can do with it. DigitalOcean.com. And use the promo code last July. Go see why I am so damn excited about what DigitalOcean is doing. I... I think what we are witnessing here is a fundamental shift in the technology, and oh, they yeah. are at the leading front of it. They were the ones that realized we can take advantage of KVM. We can take advantage of SSDs. If we find the right hardware, and we find the right data centers, and we really focus on getting good connections, then all we have to do is make an incredible dashboard, iterate on that product, make it better all the time, yeah. add more features, more management capabilities, but don't add complexity. All of that sounds trivial, but DigitalOcean is the only company that's gotten it right. And they're doing it with open source technology like Docker and Doku. It's amazing. One-click access. I could just go on and on. DigitalOcean.com. Last July when you check out. Let's rock it for July. That's right. Get it in there. You know, Last and I'll July. tell you, I like to SSH into that bad boy. Um, you know, it's a little uh, kind of the way to go. Yeah, man. You, you know what? If you got SSH, you can just install Mosh from the. Uh, I think it's it's, it's 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 in the either in the in AUR or it's in the extra repo. Anyway, oh, install, I see. What you're saying. Yeah. You install Mosh. It's a package, and then it just goes over SSH. And then if you ever have if you ever get disconnected, uh, Mosh sort of evens that out. Bob's your uncle. Speaking of something else, I'm running on my DigitalOcean droplet and uses SSH. It's an app pick that was submitted to the subreddit uh, just this weekend, and I've just set it up on my machine upstairs. So I don't. It's actually kind of hard to demo here on air because it's not on this computer, right? Uh, because all my data is upstairs. But I, I wanted to say a special thank you to uh, Kelpots, Kelpots, who submitted this to the last subreddit. It's called Attic. And uh, it runs over SSH, and it's a secure backup program for Linux and FreeBSD and oh, Mac yeah. OS X. Right. It's designed for efficient data storage, where only new and modified data is stored. It has a variable block size deduplication. It's used to reduce the number of bytes stored by detecting redundant data. Each file is split into a number of variable length chunks, and only chunks that have never been seen before are compressed and added to the repository. All data can be protected using 256-bit AES encryption, not to mention it's transmitting over your SSH connection. So the order of uh, processes you you have to have SSH on a box. Right. You probably already got that. Sure. Yeah. Then you install Attic. You set up Attic, and then Attic will use the connection over SSH and then takes care of the rest. The deduplication is super nice, so that way you're not transmitting duplicates of anything you don't need. You set up a repository system, so you can have, like, I have a Bonobo repository, which I haven't configured yet. I have a Frank repository. That's Frank's right. my computer upstairs. Yeah. I have a Frank repository. <laughs> 
repository, right? All going to yeah. my DigitalOcean droplet. Now, this could be any system. It doesn't have to be a droplet, right? It could just be another box on your network running SSH awesome. or anywhere. Sure. Uh, so it's attic, A-T-T-I-C. You can find it at attic-backup.org. We'll have a link in the show notes. You know, that might be one I might look into because I've been trying to do a few different solutions to basically get some stuff backed up. And I'm not really impressed with any of them, but I like the fact that this isn't like duplicating a lot of redundant stuff. It's actually uh, working over SSH. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know the part that you know what sealed me on it though. What's that? You can mount the backups as a mountable user space file system, so you can go in there ah. and you know, hey, I just, hey, I need this file, right? I don't want to have right, to go through right. this arcane like restore command pro. You you have those options too. That you can't just there restore files, go. but you can also just mount it as a fuse file system and browse it. See, which that, that actually it's kind of nice, nice right? because I don't necessarily want to like pull everything back all at once. Right, right, and and you don't necessarily like. When you just need a picture or a doc, you don't want to have to go. Oh, what was the syntax for the restore? Because you know exactly. you don't you don't remember it all the time. It it's is. also just a good way to do like a sanity check on your backups and check the timestamps and stuff. Makes sense. Yep. So attic attic as you probably uh, would guess, and it was submitted to the last subreddit. Uh, and uh, Kelpots is using mm. it. Hey, the thing he loves about it is that space to store, store uh, efficient storage. Yeah. Where it's doing the deduplication. For me personally, that would be a big one. And, you know, if you're worried about where the data rests, having it at uh, AES-256 is uh, pretty reassuring. Plus, you there have you the SSH encryption for the transfer. A lot of encryption. Pretty yes. cool. Pretty cool. I will uh, I'll report back after I've used it for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And yeah if you're having luck with it, I may actually uh, take the leap. All right, yeah. so I should have grabbed it. I'm a bad person. I don't know, of course, one more. I can't go up and grab it right now. I suppose. No, no. I guess we could pause the show. Yeah. But uh, I'll just show it to you. You'll get the gist, even if I don't, even if I can't demo okay. it for you. It's uh, I. I normally do open source spotlight. So we have the app pick for Linux, and then we have a spotlight. And okay, I like to right. put an open source project in here or a distribution that needs a little bit of attention. But every now and then, we'll do a hardware pick. Ooh. Not free. No, you're gonna no, have to spend a little cash, a little, little green. Little but green. if if you load Linux distros semi frequently, or if you're burning, if you're still burning ISOs, or if you're using DD to write to a USB thumb drive a lot, you do that. Oh, That's yeah. what I constantly, used to do too. Constantly. That's what I used to do, Matt. Ugh. But uh, producer Eric uh, on the train ride was telling me about how he solves this problem. Mm. It's from a it's a drive storage caddy from Zalman. Okay, and it's called the ZM dash V E. 300. It's a two and a half inch USB 3.0 external hard drive case. It's got a little LCD screen. It's made of metal and aluminum composite. Mm. Uh, it's got uh, for Windows. It's got some really nice backup software. Okay. Okay. Interesting. You say right? Very sure. very interesting. It's, I mean, just on the surface. It's do you like, see oh, it's an this? Uh, hard drive. Do you see this LCD right. screen right here? You see that right there? Yeah. Do you see how that yeah, says dot ISO on it? This uh, actually has built into the USB controller mm-hmm. the ability to emulate a USB CD-ROM from any ISO image stored in a folder on the drive. So you drop oh. an ISO image on the drive, you turn on the drive, and now this LCD screen will allow you to cycle through all of the ISO images. Oh, God, you select like the playlist. I- right. You oh. select the ISO image. It still works as a hard drive, but now also that ISO shows up as a USB 3.0 CD-ROM to your system. It presents the ISO, and your computer uh, can boot from it. I like that. So you don't first, have to do anything it, else. Because at first I'm thinking... Okay, so you install something to an external hard drive, but then I then once I got the playlist aspect of it and the fact you don't right. have to install Squat, right? Um, hey, so hello. this uh, the 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 head point pulls out. You snap your own drive on. It's just the caddy. It's fifty dollars mm. for the caddy. That's not bad. Then uh, there's an underscore ISO folder in the root of the drive. Any ISO you drop on there is then re- is read by the drive and shows up in the LCD screen to choose. There's a little uh, jog dial on the side that you jog oh, through the okay. list of okay. ISOs. You choose it. 
and then it emulates a CD-ROM. And it comes with a carrying case. It comes with screws and a screwdriver so you can mount it permanently. Uh, It's also powered by the bus, so you don't have to have a separate power cord. So it's just the one cord drawing the power for the drive, so it makes it nice and clean and portable. That's good. Uh, It's really slick because, uh, you know, for me, I'm constantly loading distros. So now I've got got my latest Ubuntu ISO on there, Integros ISO on there, uh, Manjaro. It's all on one drive, and I can walk to the machine. I choose it from the list, and now it pretends like it's a CD-ROM. Interesting. I, you know, I think it's. I think that's actually kind of nails it on the head. One thing I wonder is um, if they have maybe an option for persistent data or something like that. Oh, it's still a full hard drive too. Oh, so it's still you got your yeah. regular hard drive. It still has all the regular data. hard, and you can put as you just put the size of drive. Oh, I sh- I opted to put now. This is a little wow. this is a little overkill, but I had a hundred and twenty gigabyte SSD sitting around. Yeah, yeah. So now when I'm installing a Linux distro, it's over USB three. From an SSD, it is crazy. It makes it takes a twenty-five minute installation down to ten minutes. It's really awesome. That would be nice. Uh, I got to tell you, that would be now. There's it's fifty bucks. No drive. You have to supply your own drive. You ready for the downside? Okay. What's the downside? I can take it. It has to be formatted in NTFS. (laughs) (laughs) Because the little firmware reads NTFS. Now, if you got NTFS 3G installed on your Linux box, it's really no problem. But you do have it does have to be NTFS. Now, here's the other thing: if you have Windows, they have a firmware tool that'll let you format the drive. You can format it to anything you want. It could be extended for ButterFS, but for that ISO feature to work, it's got to be NTFS for that firmware to read it. You can replace the firmware, and then it can read it from a FAT32 drive. But I believe, I haven't tried it, the way to replace it is through a Windows installer. So if you have Windows handy, you can switch the drive to FAT32. However, I've been using it for a couple of days with NTFS. It's it's really not a problem anymore. It mounts right up on my Archbox. It no issue. It's, it's been a while, but I think FAT32's got some uh, inter- its own limitations. <laughs> Chatroom's like, Chatroom's like, oh, all that buildup and it's a letdown. I was pretty disappointed yeah. when, when Eric told me that too, but you know what? I decided to give it a go anyways. It's really pretty manageable. If you haven't mounted an NTFS drive lately, it's... It's really oh, it's, not a big deal. It's stupid easy. But I also here's one approach. Could you not do NTFS for, you know, like those the directory with your ISOs? Okay, it's like okay, you're you might be able to do a that. partition. And I was about to say, and then yeah. just partition that out to where you, you got might. something sane for yeah. your persistent data or whatever. You know, I is just gonna fill this I'm just gonna fill this thing with ISOs. So I'm really just you using don't care. it for ISOs. Yeah. But that's yeah. a good point, Matt. Because then you got some persistent action you can kinda take with You could like carve off like maybe fifty gigs or twenty gigs for ISOs, exactly. make that NTFS, make the rest extended for. That's it. That's the way I do it. But it's 50 bucks. It's 50 bucks. I know that part sucks. You can convert to FAT32 if you have access to a Windows box and, and update the firmware. Uh, that, yeah, you could. That was yeah. irrelevant for me uh, because I've got NTFS 3G mm. installed already. Uh, be, uh, you know, I mean. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I, I like, I, I think I could get around it. I think if I partitioned it, I could eat that. Remind me for the feedback segment. I'll go grab it so you can hold it, too, because it's yeah. a nice metal case, too. It's okay. well designed. Solid state feeling. Yeah, and I like the single cable bus powered, so I just bring one. And it, it comes with a carrying case, so it goes nice to the laptop bag. I, I will grant you it is slightly... It's negative in the freedom <laughs> dimension. Needing the NTFS is not ideal. It was almost a deal breaker, but at 50 bones, for as much as I load distros... Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I think I can get behind it, as long as I can partition it off. And as long as it's a low-power consumption guy, yeah. which it sounds like it is, and so I'm not eating, like, just killing my it's laptop. really fast, Matt. Like, it is faster than installing from a, you know, from a fast thumb drive. It is, okay. it is really okay. fast. So I was pretty impressed, but yeah, there is yeah. that. <laughs> so I let, I held that one to the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I can get past that. I th- I think for what it's being used for, and if you can kind of manage things to your liking. Yeah. You know. What would be a, what would be amazing, right, is if it's supported extended for. Maybe they will if they get enough customer demand. I I, I don't know. 
That would be nice. And if you know of a if you know of a drive like this, this probably isn't the only one on the market. If you know of one like this that does support extended four, well, and how the hell would you Google something like that? Yeah. This thing that reads ISOs that yeah. uh, I mean, I... Zalman's a good name. It's a good. It's I I even like the way it's built. Like the the top pulls right out, the drive slides right in. It's so, and like you said, it has a solid state feel mm-hmm. for your solid state drive. Mm-hmm. Um, why not, right? Yeah. So there you go. It's mm-hmm. the Zalman ZM V three hundred, and I got the B model. You can find it on Newegg and Amazon for about fifty U.S. dollars. Bounge. And uh, you know, if you're a, if you're a frequent uh, distro loader, or you know, if you're a, another person, tech support. This can be ah, huge for tech support. You definitely. know, if you gotta because you could you could throw a Windows ISO on there, right? You could. Or a system a system rescue CD that ISO would be on there. Useful, actually. I just for the rescue CDs alone, various then you, utilities. The also then it acts still acts as a USB drive. So when you boot mm. up, you have persistent USB storage. You can still write to. That's helpful. Yeah, that is helpful. helpful. Yeah. All right, Matt. Let's do the news. the news and this episode is brought to you by ting.com matt ting is mobile that makes sense ting is my mobile service provider and matt's mobile service provider boom i like how you just rock that note too you know uh, i was down at uh, portland oregon and people are like hey do you still have that note too because that's a great fun i'm like no i gave that to matt and he right. rocks the note too on the ting network and let me tell you why no contracts no early termination fee but <laughs> this is the best part it's six dollars a month, and then it's just whatever your usage is on top of that. So I just went down to uh, Portland, Oregon. I think you might have heard that mm-hmm. mentioned that a couple of times, and I brought a Ting phone with me. Ting sent me an iPhone five, so that way I could kind of compare the iOS eight beta to the Android L beta. And I, this, you know, going on a trip with an iPhone, Matt, oh I was my I didn't know what to expect. You're, you're kind of like you feel like. Just detached in a way, right? It yeah. was, uh, but the, you know what? The Portland, Oregon area rocked LTE the entire oh, yeah. time I was down there. Oh, and yeah. Ting has a whole range of really great devices. And I realized too, like, uh, I, I might, I might just be a feature phone guy. Maybe I'll grab a feature phone and then carry in my pocket. Look at this for seventy four dollars from Ting, uh, Sierra LTE hotspot that's got the OLED screen on there so you get your signal information your battery information right on the hotspot you bring this bad boy with you all your devices are connecting it's a $6 hotspot after you pay that initial $74 and it's just your data usage on top of that that's how Ting works Ting takes your messages your minutes and your megabytes they add them all up whatever bucket you fall into at the end of the month you just pay that plus whatever dues you got to pay to the man you know the tax man coming Mm -hmm. and collecting plus Mm -hmm. one of the great things about Ting is just a little perk as a customer is no hold customer service you can call them at 1-855 Five Ting FTW anytime between eight a.m. or eight p.m. business times, and uh-huh. a real person answers the phone. They've also got an incredible control panel. I think this is maybe my favorite feature because I'm able to just go in there and add and, and remove or transfer devices, or maybe turn a device off temporarily and then turn it back on, or set up call forwarding or voicemail options all through the dashboard. But also, I can immediately see what each device's usage is at in a very simple sort of like heads up dashboard kind of right, way, like right. like dash like right off your car dashboard. It's almost uh, uh, L cars, you know. I mean, <laughs> it, it literally has that feeling where like you are friggin' Picard standing there and you are in control of your mobile destiny. You know, phasers, yeah. t- photon torpedoes, apps. Right. It's right. got it. Right, know? it does. It totally does. And uh, they've also got a companion app for your phone, so that way if if you do want to manage that stuff from the phone, you can. They've also got a great online. Resource, but I think Definitely. probably the thing I love about Ting is like if I'm going to be giving my money to a mobile company mm-hmm. every single month, I want to make sure it's going to the right place. Somebody That's who's right. trying to make the industry a little bit better, 
And the other great thing about Ting is not only do they qualify in all of that regard, but they're also just smartphone and Android enthusiasts themselves, and that's why they're always rocking the Android app picks. You guys know us. We love app picks. That's so does big Ting. Big time. And Kyra's here with this week's Android app pick. Want to check your heart rate but don't want to shell out hundreds for a smartwatch? I'm Kyra, and this is Ting's app of the week. Yeah! Oh, yeah. Rundastic Heart Rate is a simple app that lets you check your heart rate whenever you want, directly from your smartphone. Using your camera and flash, Rundastic measures your pulse to actually produce an accurate reading. When first opening the app, create an account and enter your personal information. Tap Start to begin measuring your heart rate. Make sure to hold your finger on the back of the device until the red circle completes. Once finished, you can choose to save or discard your reading. Select a measuring type based on what you're up to, such as resting heart rate or after sport along with entering your current mood. Oh, that's interesting. You can share your stats on a variety of social channels along with Runtastic's website. Swipe left to view the history page, which displays your previous stats on a neat bar graph. You could use this on your walks. Runtastic's oh, no, heart definitely. rate is available for free on Android and iPhone. There's also a paid version for two bucks, which allows unlimited measurements, filters, no ads, and more. Thanks for watching and make sure to subscribe to our channel. And of course, you can also follow Ting on Google Plus or Twitter. Go over to last.ting.com. They got links to all of their information, plus their savings calculator, which I really recommend you give a go. Put in your actual usage into that thing and see how much you'd save over a couple of years. That might just make you switch right there. And if you're having one little bit of sticky, you know, that contract that your current oppressive mobile carrier has you in, well, Ting has an early termination relief program that'll give you $75 in credits per line that you have to get canceled early. Yeah. That's it. Right? Like, talk about making that smooth. Well, I think the, I think the key thing that most people find is when they actually look at how many minutes they're using, not, not, not your plan. I'm talking about the actual usage. Actual usage. Pop your actual whatever minutes and Mm -hmm. data you're using into it. And then you're just like, Oh. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's pretty eye-opening, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, and they, if you go over to last.ting.com, they've got that savings calculator right there. And really, you, for me, it was like, oh, man, I've been getting screwed for years. <laughs> well, and then you start, like, your hindsight starts kicking in. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, I could have bought yeah. a boat. Yeah. A well, house, and I realized and for me, so. like, it was a bit of a self-realization moment because I went, oh, man, I let, I let the – obsession with getting the new shiny and having data and being part of this new thing i let that drive me into some really bad decisions and ting is helping me correct those poor decisions and kind of come back down to a little more realistic and more sustainably long-term approach to mobile unnecessary contracts are the devil avoid them yep last.ting.com and a really big thank you to ting for sponsoring the linux action show Matt, huge week in the news. Uh, old friend of the show, goodoldgamesgog.com, made some uh, headlines when they yeah. announced finally support for Linux. One of the most popular feature requests to good old games in their community uh, wish list has finally been granted. Linux support has arrived at gog.com. They're nice. launching with 50 plus titles. Uh, and of course, they're going to have more, uh, all corners of their DRM free category. Many classic titles are officially coming to Linux for the very first time, thanks to custom builds prepared by their dedicated team. That's over 20 fan favorites like uh, Fallout, Fallout 2, Darklands, Realms of Haunting. Oh, I bought, they had a good sale, right. so I grabbed a couple. Yeah, well, why not, right? They said, we've personally ushered one by one into the welcoming embraces of Linux users. Uh, it's already quite a nice chunk of our back catalog, and you can expect more from our dedicated Linux team soon. And they have a whole list here. Duke Nukem's on there. Some Ooh. Pinball World's on there. <laughs> some Sid Meier's Colonization is on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some good stuff on there. They say, uh, they, okay, how? The people might have been wondering. 
how will Linux support work at right? GOG.com? Yeah, like, well, you might ask that question. I, I've wondered this. Well, here's what they say, Matt. They say, uh, for native Linux versions, as well as special builds prepared by our team, GOG.com will provide distro-independent tar.gz archives and convenient deb installers for the two most popular distributions, Ubuntu and Mint, in their current and future LTS editions. Helpful and responsive customer support has always been a part and part of good old games experience. We wouldn't have any other way when it comes to Linux. And starting today, our help desk offers support for our Linux releases on Ubuntu and Mint. So they're doing TarGZs for everybody that's not on Debian's uh, base. That, that works. That means Arch. You know. Yeah, and you get you download the TarGZ. So how do you feel about, let's say right now, a huge portion of these games are running maybe under a DOS box or some emulation layer that allows them, they're Windows games or DOS right. games. Now we're on Linux. Do you have a problem with I this? I don't care. I, you see, I, this is what always cracks me up. People, oh my God, it's there, there has been some strong response. People I, are a little upset. You know, it's kind of like, first of all, you know, as my wife would say, get the Cheetos out of your beard. <laughs> get over it. You know, she calls Linux people Cheeto eaters. She just does. Um, <laughs> you know, she's a Mac person, obviously. But I think that people <laughs> really get over that and, and look at it and say, look, who cares? It's like, is this a game that you want to play? Yes or no? Yes. Suck it up or don't buy it. I mean, at the end of the day, now myself, I have a preference for native games. I will probably course, not make yeah. that. Yeah, but I'm not going to like not buy a game because I don't, as long as it performs well, doesn't blow up my system, doesn't uh, crash, create problems. If it does that, I will hate it on those merits, mm. not based on whether it's emulated or not. I just personally, for myself, hate me, love me, I don't care. I don't give a rip. I really don't care. I uh, say here's, I just like the game titles. I have a I have an arbitrary line that right. somehow I've drawn, and t- you can m- maybe check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my line: brand new game being developed today that should be native. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, older classic yeah. game from the '90s, early yes. 2000s. I'm okay with that being an emulator because we would. It's never ever ever going to be financially viable for those developers of like exactly. Bionic Dudes or Ano right. Anomaly Warzone Earth yeah. or a Duke Nukem 3D maybe. Yeah, but yeah. it's never going to be financially viable for those guys to port those games to Linux. And the and the systems they use to create those games probably aren't even around anymore, you know, software stack mm-hmm. and all of that mm-hmm. really. So if you want a classic old game from your, you know, your old gaming days and you're willing to play pay the nostalgia tax, well look, first of all these are like crazy cheap. Right, and yep. the second of all, these are games are never going to be ported in the first place. Otherwise, right. I it's draw the line side scroll. Yeah, new games. I'll give you that. I mean, and even then, it's really if it's a title I want to play, I'll probably still play it. It's a little side scrollers and things like that. I'm gonna, you know, come on. I, I'm gonna just play it. Yeah. I don't care as long as it runs and whatever, and doesn't impact you know. performance. No, no. Then ways. then I care. Yeah. yeah. That, that, then I just won't play the game. And I'm really Easy. excited. I think it's a great to see GOG jump in on this. Obviously, Definitely. we've been fans of them for years on this show. So they had a great sale going. I, bra- I grabbed a few games. I'm gonna keep an eye on them. We'll let you know if. They they have something really awesome. Uh, so congrats to them. Glad to have you guys here. And I'm liking the approach, too. I'm, thank you for the Tar GZ. Absolutely. That's see, nice. that, see, it's accessibility. Letting me yeah. play it means more to me than how they did it. It's like, I, I just don't care. I just want for, to play the for game. For entertainment value and God, stuff like that. Know? It's it's like popcorn, right? Yeah. I mean, I can have a game that runs native. It runs like crap. I'm not going to play <laughs> that game. I don't care. How yeah. it, I just yeah. can't even wrap my brain around it. There that. is that aspect of God, it. it's like, who? I've had both, right? I've had both. Um, and then there's yeah. th- games like The Witcher 2 where I had no performance issues, but because it was emulated, a lot of people did. Right. So, That's Hey, uh, huge news broke while we were down at OSCON, and uh, this is one of those that 
I'm so elated about it. I, I, I just I can't even put it in the context of the news segment. But this is a major win for the UK citizens uh, because the UK government has chosen ODF, Open Document Format, as the format they'll be using for any documents that need to be edited and distributed. So for reading documents, they're going to say go HTML or PDF. Eh, okay, but for documents that are going to be worked on or have to have a life to them, the UK government has decided to go with the Open Document Format. Makes sense. It's going to start happening soon too. It's not like it's going to take a really long time for them to make the transition. This is kind of a huge deal. Um, uh, right now, the uh, major government power has made a shift and a statement. With this coverage and change, the government will save roughly $2 billion during the Whoa. current life of the current parliament. $2 billion. I and mean, that's crazy. We were, uh, like I mentioned, lucky enough to be at OSCON to talk to them about this. So we had an interview with the LibreOffice guys to see what they thought about this huge announcement. Oh, wow. And then uh, Noah slipped in also a question about when are we going to see Google Docs-style collaborative editing nice. come to LibreOffice? So uh, this interview covers Maybe. those things. OSCON 2014 walking around the room and we came over to the Libre office where Italo is kind enough to stop and talk with us. One of my absolute favorite open source projects because this is something I use on a daily basis. How are you doing today, sir? Fine. It's really exciting to be here and to see so many people interested in LibreOffice. Man, I tell you, there, there, I've seen a lot of projects that I recognize, a lot of companies that I have an affiliation with, but LibreOffice is literally not a day goes by that I don't have at least some some application of LibreOffice open the majority of the time when I'm sitting in front of my computer, right? Now, I understand that there are some almost could be considered breaking news that happened with uh, for LibreOffice today. Yes. Uh, actually, I don't think it's only for us, although we are one of the leaders in, in this area, but it's, uh, it's breaking news for everyone interested in, uh, in working with documents. Actually, the UK government has standardized on open document format. Open document format is not only the native format of LibreOffice, it's an is a open format for documents that allow everyone to get complete freedom of its contents. Uh, so if you produce a document in, uh, in open, and you save it in open document format, it will be possible to open that document with dozens, if not hundreds, of applications, which means that you are not tied into a single software. And this is real freedom. This is what we have been fighting for over eight years now, because the ODF standard was born in, uh, in 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's really great news. Uh, and it's something that will allow us to go to other governments and say, if the UK government is able to standardize on that, you should look at their documents, you should look at their reasons and do the same, because this uh, is an advantage for all the citizens. And a, and a government should look at the citizens at, before it looks at any business. Right, and that doesn't even you know that doesn't even touch on the cost effectiveness of having a document format that you know is is not only free in the freedom sense but is free in the cost sense too. Now, one of the things that I'm really excited about, and I had a chance to talk with uh, somebody else from your organization a couple months ago, was collaborative editing, and I understand that that is something that is coming up in OpenOffice, or uh, sorry, LibreOffice, and I wanted to find out um, a little bit more if you can tell me um, where you guys are in the development cycle, how soon that might be a reality. So that is a little bit more complicated because uh, the LibreOffice code base uh, is uh, inherited from OpenOffice and uh, is, not a, is not a modern code base. Mm -hmm. 
goes back to the 90s and uh, to allow some features, including collaborative editing, uh, you s we still need a little bit of cleaning up the old code. Mm -hmm. But we are getting closer and closer to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I just make an example. For instance, uh, there was a there is a feature that was set for years to be impossible to achieve and was to have a paragraph of over 65,000 characters, mm -hmm. uh, which of course is a rather weird thing because it's a kind of 24 pages in a single paragraph, but it's a request from, from some countries. And with LibreOffice 4.3 coming up next week, mm -hmm. this will be this feature will be a reality. After 11 years, it has been requested the first time. So uh, this feature was set until a couple of years ago to be impossible. We have made the impossible possible. So I think we will make collaborative editing possible in the near future. I cannot give a date, though, because I think it, we still need a little bit of time and we need a little bit of investments from uh, maybe a government, maybe a company, because uh, uh, it's not only cleaning, uh, it's also feature development, and uh, uh, that is takes more time from developers. I'm uh, I'm really excited about the open document stuff. The uh, sounds like the collaborative editing is going to take a little while, which it, is a bit of a disappointment. It, it is. And now, if memory serves me correctly, I do believe. I'm not 100% on this, but I believe there actually was a plug-in, yeah. an extension. That's what that, they said at Linux Fest. Yeah. That's what we were told. Never, I don't think it really worked that well from what I remember of it, but it did exist. So it's you know it's theoretically possible. And yeah. a little cash maybe for uh, yeah. foundation might go a long way. Man, I would love collaborative editing in LibreOffice. I Definitely. tell you, and you know what? Uh, I've heard from several people that say, yeah, I use Google Docs because of the collaborative editing. There's yeah. other things out there that do it, but Google Docs has it all together. This is uh, true. Let's talk a little security news. We've talked about Tails. Remember, if you Google search Tails, you might be on a watch Ooh, list. Yeah. Well, here's another problem if you're a Tails user. The Tails operating system has a bug. Uh, oh, no. There, We don't really have a lot of the technical details yet because the group that found it, Exodus, is holding it for Black Hat. Um, oh. they, they actually tweeted out about the vulnerability before they even notified the Tails project. Oh, and they have now supposedly notified the Tails project with more information. Mm -hmm. uh, so they said, we're hesitant to release any technical details because we don't want anyone to be able to reproduce the exploit. This is according right. to Exodus. Understand. Understand. Sure. But they, of course, went ahead and announced that they had found something in a tweet, and then the company has promised to withhold the details of that bug until Tails has a chance to put out a patch. They will talk about it at Black Hat, though. Uh, they say, we're just trying to let everyone know you can't trust any of these systems 100%. Tails responded by saying... We were not contacted by Exodus uh, Intel prior to this tweet. Uh, and in oh. fact, a more irritated version of this text was ready when we finally did receive an email from them. It's still unclear which aspect of the software is vulnerable, and it may be uh, hard to figure it out, although the Tails project thinks they've nailed it down. But it would, uh, it would lead to a Tails user being um, exposed, their identity being exposed. Well, so, okay, here's where they started off really good. It's like, oh yeah, we're doing we're doing everyone this solid. We're alert, you know letting everyone. <laughs> oh hey, by the way, um, uh Yeah, we we went ahead and did this at Black Hat. Good luck or with they that. Will be. Or they're, will be. Oh, okay. They're teasing so, the upcoming. Okay, see, okay. it's like it's like in a month or something. Still. Yeah, but Even, it's about yeah, teasing. Still. It's a yeah, promo, right? Yeah, it's get totally, the word out there. You know. Get people talking about their talk. Jeez. But it is a good thing to do. Whatever. You know, yeah, I, you I know, think it could have been handled differently. You know but, what you they know, said? Public gets resolved. When people started getting upset about Exodus response, they said, Well, hey, look, um, Normally, we charged when we find these bugs, and we're just giving <laughs> this information away to the Tails project. Oh my so I don't God. understand why everybody's so upset. Uh. 
It's like, yeah, buddy, well, you, you're using an open source. You're banging on an open source project for your own publicity. You're damn yep. well right you should provide them mm-hmm. with the fix. That or cash, guys. That if you want to, if you want to find bugs and, and never tell people about it unless you charge, go bang on commercial software. There you go. If you want to go look at code that's out there for the open that you can just read, I think you owe them a little more respect than that. It's all about doing everyone a solid. Just, it's a nice thing to do. I'm just saying. All right, this, talking about getting respect, CoreOS. We've we interviewed the core developer of CoreOS. Ha, core developer. Uh, a few weeks ago on the Linux Action Show. And it was just Sysadmin Day. To, to celebrate Sysadmin Day on July 25th, CoreOS released a brand new version, which includes Linux 3.15.2, uh, Docker 101, which oh, yeah. has a good security fix, uh, some support on all major cloud providers, including Rackspace, Amazon EC2, and Google Compute Engine. That's that's huge. That's uh, huge. And commercial support via CoreOS Managed Linux now. They've also updated their update philosophy. Mm. I've been trying to... I've been trying to come to an understanding of, of how important CoreOS is because to the yeah. old sysadmin in me, it seems it seems amazing. It, it, does. It, it fundamentally though also seems like it would threaten Red Hat and CentOS and SUSE Enterprise Linux. It's it's a distro mm. based around containerization and rapid updates right. um, for a server. And uh, I thought this sounds too radical to ever. It's it's such a departure from what we're used to, right? It, it you know it's going to be one of those things you have to wait and see. But I think initially. Yeah, you know, I don't yeah. know. It's something we're gonna have to kind of wait and see on. It definitely yeah. sounds scary on the surface. On the surface, yeah. it sounds horribly frightening. Well, but it's I think, a big difference. Yeah, it's, it's a, a big difference. difference. You've got a real contrast there. But I think over time, it may kind of find its own, and we may be able to kind of live with it. Uh, I'll tell you a sign that it's going to pick up in popularity. Rackspace is deploying CoreOS for their customers. They're That's re- a big adoption. Yeah, Rackspace is really excited about CoreOS. And while I was down at Oscon, wow. I had a chance to talk to them about it. Here's wow. that clip. Then the other product that I think is really sexy that we're working on or have released is On Metal. So I'm pretty sure you've heard about On Metal. But the idea of going kind of old school, right? So everything's been pushed to the cloud, 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 virtualization. Now we kind of backed it up and said, you know what? What if you needed bare metal quickly without having to deal with a person? And basically what we did is we took those OpenStack APIs, matured them a little bit, and be able to leverage Nova to be able to actually deploy physical hardware through those APIs, right? And on top of that, give you three options, three different types of options of the on-metal that you want to use. Wait for it. And all running core rest. Oh. Right? So you kind of get the mm-hmm. Docker, you get the container effect, you get the physical servers, so you got no noisy neighbors, you got high compute, High performance. So Docker is uh, cool with CoreOS. You guys are digging yes. CoreOS, huh? Absolutely. We're digging CoreOS. Uh, we think that that is the direction that most of the technology is going to end up going. Oh. We also think that there there's a is. curve to going back to physical. Uh, we think that people want performance. People want reliability. But they still want the self-service. And that's where the, the whole... Part too. Is that? Don't forget the upgrade part, too. Like, you don't have... Not just installing, but if you need to upgrade something... Absolutely. You just... Drop a new one in. Absolutely. That's nice. Absolutely. So those are some of the those are two other things that I think are really sexy that uh Rackspace is doing right now. They're all in on CoreOS, Matt. Sounds like it. I mean they are just knee deep in this stuff. And Docker too. Like they're all like That's Docker, nice. Docker, CoreOS, physical servers, provisions, physical servers, load CoreOS, Docker, Docker. And that was that was I cut that down and we had about a fifteen minute chat with them. It wasn't the first time those things came up, but that was the point where we got the most CoreOS wow. clarification in there. Wow. Congratulations to CoreOS. Huge yeah. success. And it makes sense. If you didn't catch our interview with the core developer of CoreOS, I would Check recommend you go catch that because it's obviously going to be a huge major disruptor. That's Red Hat makes all of their money from the space that CoreOS is moving into. And I like the fact, yeah, th- this is going to be, I, I, it, you know, I don't think it's quite really sunk in yet, but I think once it hits, it's going to be like, uh, ooh, ooh, oh, uh, yeah. oh, uh, oh. 
Now, maybe Red Hat can adapt and, and re-architecture uh, Red Hat's Enterprise Linux to be more like CoreOS. But they it's going to adjust a little. A little, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe adjust that hat. Absolutely. I may, um, I may say CoreOS, but you never know. A community favorite this week had a big update. OwnCloud 7.0 was released. Ooh. And... We've talked a little bit about some of the awesome server-to-server sharing features. Of course, there's been improvements across the board. You can now sync from one own cloud instance to another. That's the big that one for I me. Like. Improved file sharing now makes it easy to send links to folks. Big time. All kinds of nice features there. They've got a really great page at owncloud.org slash seven that go through all of the updates. I look at this in, in document collaborative editing right there. You can you can edit ODT files. That see this is the, this is honestly you know while I want I want my cloud but I don't want it in the cloud. Does that yeah. make sense? You know you want oh you yeah want it, you know yep definitely. This is what, exactly what I'm thinking about. They've improved the uh, mobile web support, file activity notifications, mm-hmm. significant significant speed improvements. There's enough to dig into Own Cloud Seven that I think what we need to do is. Let's get Frank, the uh, creator of OwnCloud, on the show next right. week. So Frank will be on the Linux Action Show next Sunday to go through the OwnCloud 7 features, the ones he's most excited about. I want to double down on these improvements to performance questions, too. I want to talk to him about what they did there, the server sharing. That'll be interesting because like that. there's, like, there's so many things to where it's like every time you try it, something new's come out, and it's like, okay, i got to check this out. Yeah, yeah. That's it. So if you are an OwnCloud fan, if you have any questions for Frank, the creator of OwnCloud, Send them in, Linux Action Show, jupiterbroadcasting.com, or add them to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. More likely to see them there. Mm-hmm. And we'll have Frank on the show next week to tell us about all of the goodies in OwnCloud 7. And if you're itching to get on it yourself, go over to owncloud.org slash 7, S-E-V-E-N, all spelled out. Look at this. I mean, this is big-time stuff. So this is a, definitely a uh, – you're going to want to check this out and definitely want to make sure you don't miss the episode. Oh, yeah, and they also this is the one where they moved to object stores as primary storage. So Ooh. they now leverage Swift object stores as a primary storage for own cloud files, which should also probably play into that uh, performance improvement. Big time. And the new UI improvements for user management as well. Oh, man. Uh, man, look at own cloud just getting better and better all I mean, the time. It's like, it's, I, I'm going to have to do something here. This is, this it's going to happen. This is, over the last few years, is becoming one of my favorite open source projects to watch mm-hmm. and it, it's it, could it solves not, real problems could right? they not be doing this at a better time like this this is the most perfect time ever for a project like this. i mean it would be awesome to because you know, this is the first step in de-googling ourselves yep. i mean the next step obviously is a legitimate gmail alternative and believe yeah. me i've looked at them all you yeah suggested i've probably tried it three times <sighs> eh, not really there this is a huge step though this is a huge step yes. this can do contacts calendar uh, collaborative editing file sharing Dropbox. imagine if they threw some uh, gmail like action in there oh. that would be oh my god Ooh. Mm. Yeah, we're going to check it out next week. So if you got a question, send it into the show. Definitely. All right, Matt, that's all the news for this week. I'm really excited to tell you about my great trip to OSCON 2014. I jumped a train and went down to Portland, Oregon. OSCON just wrapped up. It ran from July 20th to the 24th. I got a story or two, and we scored some great interviews. But before we get to that, I want to thank our segment sponsor, System76. Go over to System76.com right now. Don't wait. Go right now. Check out the Ultra Pro. Tell me you haven't dreamed of a Linux laptop like this. Now imagine a world where all of your hardware was designed to work with Linux. That world is real. It's here. It's System76.com. They've also got the Bonobo Extreme. That's the laptop I rock. That's mobile gaming right there on the go. It's a desktop killer. 
It's it's a monster. They've got a sale on it right now. Hardware controls for the keyboard, hardware backlighting controls, even changing the color all through hardware. So you can swap out distributions, even change out entire operating systems. All your hardware controls still work. That's what I love about System76. You see, they're just shaving off a lot of those rough edges for you, and it really adds up. They've also got a bunch of great desktops built right here in the U.S. of A. Go over to System76.com and check them out. And if you decide to get one, and I think you might want to, let them know the Linux Action Show sent you and said, hey, finally, I figured out I should stop fighting with my hardware and just play with my Linux. System76.com. And a big thanks to System76 for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. So I just got back a little bit ago from OSCON. I uh, took the train ride from Seattle, Washington, down to Portland, Oregon. And it's been years since I've been to OSCON. I think about five years at least. I wasn't sure what to expect. I wasn't sure what kind of conference it's developed into over the years and if it was something we should cover here on the show. But turns out I'm pretty glad we went. In fact, uh, why don't we start with our first interview? It's a gentleman that I've heard of by name and reputation, but he lives across the pond, so I've never actually had a chance to meet him. But he was at OSCON. His name is Chris Hillman, and he is the Mozilla Developer Evangelist. He talks about all things open web, HTML5, Firefox OS, and all of those goodies in our interview with him. We're here with Chris from the Mozilla Project at OSCON 2014. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm good. I just arrived, so I'm rather knackered from England, but uh, it's... Good looks good so far. Yeah. So, uh, well, welcome to the U.S. and welcome to OSCON. Yeah, it's good for first time Portland for me. So I'm looking forward to getting around and seeing what the tax-free place in America looks like. <laughs> That's outstanding. So Mozilla is, is regarded by some, including myself, as being one of the most fantastic leaders in the open source community because of your commitment to actual open source values, right? Like, you look at, like, every other company, every other competing web browser, uh, they have their own interest. And Mozilla seems to really hone down and focus on the principles that I think most people want to see a company based in open source focus on. So tell me what the latest projects that are coming up, what are you guys working on, what's going on right now, what's going to be coming up, um, what's happening at Mozilla? Well, the thing about Mozilla is that we actually were born as open source. The only thing, that was the only way we could survive back then mm-hmm. after the Netscape debacle. So it is in our DNA. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that we release that is not open source. Mm-hmm. And it was tricky at times. Sometimes it's tricky to be as competitive as others because it always fascinates me when people come up like, oh, like iOS is this great experience. And you're like, well, if I control the hardware, the distribution and the software, right. then it should be the best experience. <laughs> and it is. It's good. It's fine that they're doing great jobs, uh-huh. but you cannot compare the two. Right. So in Mozilla, we're dedicated to open source in everything we do. So the big thing that we released in the last few years, which I focused on a lot, is Firefox OS. Mm -hmm. Firefox OS is an open source operating system for mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And instead of just going the route of saying, like, okay, we bring an open source operating system out in the Western world, Mm -hmm. we targeted it directly at the places that cannot have connectivity with iOS and Android. So the emerging markets, Bangladesh, India, Africa, Eastern Europe, South America. And this is what we've done with Firefox OS the last few years. We've got a phone here and we've got phones out in the market mm-hmm. that has an operating system that basically is ADB mm-hmm. under the hood, like the Gonk Linux layer that you have on Android as well. We mm-hmm. didn't have to reinvent that. It's open source, fair right. enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got rid of everything in between and just put Firefox on top of it. Sure. So everything in this operating system is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So if you're a web developer, you can also start becoming an app developer. Sure. And the great thing about the web was that every consumer was already a maker. 
the view sourcing, you realized how something was done and right. then you started imitating it and right. started doing it. And the same way happens now with Firefox OS. Uh -huh. Everybody who has Firefox installed can start building applications for Firefox OS. And testing them. Not only because of the technologies, but we have an IDE in the browser now sure, as well. Sure. So you can go to tools, say, I start a new application, and you can start your own Firefox OS application and run it either in a simulator on your desktop, mm -hmm. or you can connect the phone and send the app over there mm -hmm. and test it directly on the operating system and get the feedback from what you're doing on your computer. Mm -hmm. The price points were the biggest problem. We really wanted to make sure to make these phones affordable. Right. So the phones that came out, the first ones like two years ago in Spain, were 79 euros with already 40 euro on there for apps that you mm -hmm. can buy for them. Wow! All of these things are also, um, uh, also client billing, mm -hmm. so you don't need a credit card. You can actually put a SIM card in there, put a 50 euro on it and give it to your kid and they can spend 50 euro and not like $10,000 sure. by doing in-app payments, for example. Sure. Or you can get the apps that you buy as billed at the end of the month on your telephone bill. Uh -huh. So these are the interesting bits when you go into that market. Right, Out right. of a sudden, you realize that different countries have different necessities. Sure. On the desktop, we still have our browser and we, we, uh, we innovate heavily there as well. Developer tools were a big focus for us the last half year. Uh -huh. So we have a great set of tools in there that allows you to debug everything that's happening in mm -hmm. your phone mm -hmm. and uh, in your applications as well. So there's no... I keep talking to friends of mine in Google and we're like, there's too much magic out there. Yeah. There's too many things that like, they work, but we don't know how. Yeah, yeah. So uh, developer tools allow you to give insight into every single, uh, every single frame that the computer generates, mm -hmm. every single painting that happens and why it's slow or why it's fast. So that's a very, very important part that we do. And the big thing in the foundation that we're doing right now, and I think that's one of the things that I, is the most important to me, is privacy and security. Because sure. uh, with certain governments wanting to make a fast internet for people to pay more and a slow internet for other people, we're standing up against that because that's not... We wouldn't be here without the internet. Absolutely. And I think uh, while some people think the mobile environment as it is, like they don't need the web, but they still deserve the web. Everybody out there deserves to be a maker and everybody deserves to be not only a consumer. And I think only the web and the web on mobile devices as well allows you to do that. Now, if I can back up for a little bit, originally you said that, you know, with companies like Apple, if they can control the stack from top to bottom, it's going to be easy for them to give a good experience. Do you believe that that means that Mozilla will never be able to provide a first-class experience because you don't control things from top to bottom? No, I don't think that top-to-bottom control is something we're even interested in. I myself would be bored doing that. Right. I could not work in an environment where I'm not I'm allowed to share it with other people. Right. The benefit of open source is that it might not be as shiny as the others, but mm -hmm. it's actually much more flexible. Sure. So new demands that come in don't have to go through like 12 different managers and get signed off. Right. Somebody finding a bug in Firefox can fix it themselves, can send us the, the, the patch and can get it in within like two weeks. Mm -hmm. In an enclosed environment, that's never possible. So while we're not giving the full, I mean, I always compared it with, uh, you can go to a tailor and get yourself a suit made. That's great, that you would look awesome in that suit. Uh -huh. It will be amazing. Right. But you can never give that suit to somebody else to right. wear because it will look oh. bad on those right. person. If it fits at all. Open source is basically a suit that changes according to who's wearing it. Right. And that's I think is the power of it. So by end users will go for the shiny thing first, mm -hmm. they will also get bored of the shiny thing after a while. Sure. I'm for example, I, I have a Mac myself, I love the hardware, mm -hmm. but I'm getting, when I'm going to the Apple store and I cannot change the battery, mm -hmm. and they tell me it takes them five days to change a the battery, then mm -hmm. something went wrong. Right. 
I have to be I have to be allowed to fix the things because when I have the knowledge, why shouldn't I be allowed to do it? Right. The same way, if I have an application that is great and makes sense in my country, why do I have to go through a marketplace in America where somebody says, "Oh, that's an app that we don't care about." Right. Whereas in our case with Firefox OS, you can build the application, you can publish it on the web, you don't even have to go through the marketplace, yes. but you can go through the marketplace if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that way you get your reviews, you get your, your star ratings and all the things that people want to do. Mm -hmm. My personal opinion is that marketplaces like that and app marketplaces, I give them another two years and then people will get bored of it because yeah. software is better than that. Mm -hmm. Software should be on demand and I shouldn't have to go through an install and uninstall process just because a new feature comes into a mm -hmm. game, for example. Mm -hmm. Games should be like the new level gets downloaded from the internet. It should be 30K, not another 15 meg to replace it because right. in countries that we're going to right now, you pay per megabyte, you pay per minute. And it's not fair if end users have to pay a lot of money just because your infrastructure of your application doesn't work that way. So you said that yeah, I mean you're you're concentrating with the, this gazelle-like focus on on emerging markets and stuff. But will Firefox OS um, take off in the U.S. or maybe I guess that might be more of a prediction? But do you have plans to focus on bringing Firefox OS to the U.S. at some point? We are not releasing in any market ourselves. We release with partners. So we need a mobile partner that brings the phones out in the marketplace here. Mm -hmm. You can buy this developer phone here. That is $120 and gets delivered with post-trim packaging included. So you can do that. For developers, we already released in America. For end users, we have to find a partner that is interested and find a niche where they actually can make money with them. Mm -hmm. We want people to be successful with Firefox OS. So uh, that's why our partners that released it went to the countries where they actually were successful because they were the first ones to go in there. Mm -hmm. In America, let's see what happens. I think there's an interesting use case of having something like that as a second phone. Or as the operating system itself is written in HTML5, mm -hmm. I can change the interface to whatever I want. Mm -hmm. So I could build a phone, for example, for the elderly that has five buttons right. and five photos of my family members right. by writing an HTML page. Mm -hmm. I cannot do that on any other platform. So that would be something that's interesting. Or tablets that people want to give out. Is there anything else that you can share with us uh, or, or maybe um, where people could go if they wanted to find more information about Mozilla and what Mozilla is doing? Basically, for developers, it's developer.mozilla.org. That's where, where we have the main page where the, all the documentation is going on, where you find out about these developer devices. It's also where you can go to get uh, uh, information about the operating systems and all the platforms that we have. Mozilla.org is still the main point where you go. The fun thing about Mozilla is that nothing is hidden. You can dial into our meetings if you wanted to, really? if you're really bored. How do, how do you do I know that, that intrigues me. How do I get into a Mozilla meeting? I would love to do that. Well, if you go to the wiki, mozilla.org, we list all the Monday morning meetings where we have, and you can basically dial in with, uh, uh, with a telephone number, or you can actually follow the wiki notes as well. Everything we do is in public, and that's quite amazing. That is, that is fantastic. I'm definitely going to do that. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us, Chris. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Mozilla really had a great booth. We got to we got to chat with them. They had demo machines there. A lot of good attention at the Mozilla booth too. They stayed pretty busy, and of course, a lot of passionate people. That's one of the great things about uh, some of these booths is they brought out the people that are really their chief evangelists. And another evangelist we got a chance to talk to is Karen Sandler. You probably heard of her. She's worked with the Gnome Foundation. She was the director there for a while. Now she's the uh, executive director of the Software Freedom Conservancy. They actually have a lot of open source projects that you've 
probably familiar with like Samba and PHP My Admin underneath their umbrella. So Noah stopped by to talk to Karen about what they're up to and what they do. We're here at OSCON 2014 making our way around and we are here with Karen from the Software Freedom Conservancy. I know nothing about your organization, so this is going to be either the world's best interview or the world's worst interview. <laughs> so tell me from top to bottom what your organization is, what it does. Absolutely. So the Software Freedom Conservancy, we shorten to Conservancy, so we avoid all the alphabet soup. <laughs> um, Conservancy is the nonprofit home for over 30 free and open source software projects, so many of which you have heard of and probably using, like Git, Samba, Wine, Inkscape, PHP, MyAdmin, Selenium. You're, I'm blowing your mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got a ton of free software projects. They're all really great, and we are their nonprofit home, which means that they, it's sort of like analogous to like a division in a corporation. Each project is actually a part of our organization, and we provide all the infrastructure that they may need, any legal help. Um, so for some of them, we run conferences. We sometimes hire developers. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow. So if Inkscape wanted to have the Inkscape Designer Conference, that's something that that's incredible. Now, what what does what does a what does a project have to do? What would they have to pay to get that kind of service? Oh well, so we have an application process. We have an evaluation committee. We're a charitable nonprofit, 501c3. So what a project needs to do is to be a um, a community free software project and join us. And no no fees are required to join us, but there are fees in order to do the things that they want to do. And then we take an administrative fee so that we can do all those things for them. But uh, but then we maintain direct defense. So other organizations in our space do sort of similar things. Like there are other umbrella organizations like Apache Software Foundation, but um, we're different from them in a, in a bunch of ways. But one of them is that um, our projects can get directed donations. So, um, so if a project is, so like for example, Git, if they want to, if you want to give $20 to Git, you can just give it to Git and we maintain a fund for them and, um, and we handle all the administrative and um, financial stuff around that. So we also don't require any particular licenses. So some of our projects are permissively licensed and some of them are copyleft and people have very different attitudes, but we're like a very inclusive umbrella. So it's really, really fun. And I actually was a co-founder of Conservancy back in 2006 when I was a lawyer at the Software Freedom Law Center. Um, and then I went to Gnome and now I'm at, for, so I've only been at Conservancy for four months. So at, so you said a ton of different things that I have. I have to touch, I'm trying to back up and hit it on, on piece by piece. So starting out, you said that you provide the infra, you said that you will provide infrastructure. So what things other than, let's say, hosting a conference or scheduling a conference, what do you mean by infrastructure? So we'll hold domain names. Um, we will handle all the financial stuff, which turns out to be a massive pain. We file all the tax forms and all that stuff. Um, we handle all trademark things, so holding the trademarks and stuff like that. And then anything else that needs to be done. So, for example, booking travel to go to conferences. Um, basically, anything that a free software project might need to function, we'll take care of. We're the corporate form. That sounds outstanding. Now, when you talk about, um, uh, you, you, ta you said that you're a lawyer by trade. Yes. Well, I, I'm executive director of the organization, but I am also a lawyer. Don't no, no tomatoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I only do sort of pro bono legal work. But obviously, um, some of what I do is a legal role. Conservancy also has a general counsel, so we have dedicated legal help. Um, but I am a, a lawyer by background, and I'm still um, do pro bono legal work for the FSF, for a little bit for the EFF. For um, I'm uh, pro bono general counsel for QuestionCopyright.org. So I'm giving you a, too much for one interview. Yeah. No, no, not at all. This is so. I think that I think that it is often undervalued. Like 
a lot of people have heard of Inkscape. A lot of people use Inkscape. I use Inkscape, right? But the fact that you provide such a crucial backbone to making the Inkscape project available to people like me, and I didn't even know you guys existed, much less provide it, I, I think that's hugely undervalued. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to touch on that in regards to what kind of legal help does, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think that a free software or free software or GNU licensed software wouldn't really have a whole lot of legal battles, but I take it since you have a legal division, a council, general counsel, that's not necessarily the case. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one person, but there are a lot of legal needs for free software projects. I mean, for starters, free software itself is so predicated on legal concepts that a lot of legal stuff comes up. Um, sometimes there are some licensing problems where, um, you know, small pieces of the software will be needed need to be relicensed for um, for one of our projects we implemented a, um, a DCO or an, um, and other safeguards basically so that we can make sure that there are the legal mechanisms in place that the project needs and that's always different from project to project so the way we run conservancy is to very organically look at the projects that are in conservancy and develop mechanisms that fit their needs um, so sometimes it's basically answering questions um, the trademark stuff that's something that a lot of projects need yep it's it's a it's a place where a lot of projects um, run into trouble, actually. And so with conservancy, trademarks are held in a neutral place, and it avoids problems down the road. But there is a lot of legal work in making sure that everything is done and it's done right. And then we need legal counsel for things like reviewing contracts in terms right. of service. Right. Yada, 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 yada. And on. Yeah, no, it, it does, and, and I and I understand that na simply navigating the patent and trademark system is that's like a professional in its own, just to be able to to do that, and and that's a service that you provide to these projects that 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 are on board with you. Yeah, definitely. I mean. It's hard to actually predict what kind of needs a free software project will have as it goes along. Each project is different and if they try to accomplish different things. But what's great about having so many projects under one roof is that when we come up with the problems that happen over and over and over again, there's synergy and we can handle each of them much more efficiently. So um, I, I think it's pretty great. We are accepting new projects. Um, so you can apply, go to uh, sfconservancy.org and check out what we do and who we are. And um, yeah, in order to join, you must be a free and open or software project and um, you must have an independent community and all that good stuff. That's outstanding and, and you kind of you kind of preemptively answered my last question which is going to be um, where can people go to, to find out more about that but I'll, I'll rephrase the question and say where can people go to contribute to um, the, the software you know freedom conservative if they wanted to contribute money to you know to help out what it is you're doing. Just go to sfconservancy.org slash donate. Um, we would really appreciate any donations that we can have. We're a lean nonprofit trying to do everything we can with as little as we can. So we would really appreciate that. Outstanding. Well, you, uh, we, you know, we really appreciate you coming on camera, and you can certainly expect a donation from me. Thanks so much for taking time Thank to talk you. with us. And if you would like to donate to the Software Freedom Conservancy, we have a link in the show notes where you can do that. And thanks to Karen for stopping by and chatting with us. Uh, next up is Chris DeBona. He probably really needs no introduction, like a lot of you. I first started watching Chris when he was on Tech TV, taking guest appearances on the screensavers, a fact which we all reminded him of, which I'm sure he loves. He probably hears that all the time. Uh, but he's now the director of open source at Google. His team oversees license compliance and supports the open source developer community through programs like the Google Summer of Code, which I'm sure we're familiar with, and we chat, we chat with Chris about those. Uh, he's obviously a former uh, employee, one of the original employees of Slashdot, and a lot of other things online. So here's Noah's chat with Chris DeBona. We're here at OSCON 2014 here with Chris DeBona from Google. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm swell. How are you? 
Doing all right. So uh, what we're interested in is primarily what Google is doing and what exciting things are happening with Google and open source. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the projects that Google is involved in or the things that Google is planning on getting involved in, some of the plans Google may have? Plans, plans, plans. You know, the thing I like to talk about when people ask me this question is, uh, I mean, your your viewers probably already know about things like Chromium and Android and the rest, but you know, over the last year we've seen uh, a pretty remarkable uptake on tools like AngularJS and Karma, which is a testing project for JavaScript, and 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 those sorts of things. From a stuff that Google releases perspective, they're really really exciting. From an external perspective, like things we've funded and and work we're doing with outside groups, you know, we just. Uh, we actually just did our big meeting and, and funded the uh, core infrastructure initiative at the Linux Foundation, which is focused on anticipating and averting problems like the OpenSSL bugs that mm -hmm. we saw earlier in the year and trying to find future OpenSSL bugs, sure. or not OpenSSL bugs, but bugs right. of that caliber sure. that are lurking uh, within our shared code bases. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what we're trying to do, you know. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, you know, Summer Code is hitting our 10th year now, and we're very excited about that, and, and that's been a pretty great thing. I, I, I'll ask your cameraman to pan. These are all the groups we've helped uh, over the last 10 years, you know, by providing students for them. And we can come back in now, sorry. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so we've had over 8,000 students take part in the, the project now over the last 10 years, and it's, it's incredible, you know, just the kind of... The kind of terrific developers we found, and 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 working with the open source projects listed here, um, that we've been able to create new sort of core open source people, and and it's it's very invigorating, right? So yeah, yeah, and that that's that's outstanding that that Google has such a commitment to you know helping helping other people get involved. Can you talk a little bit about how Google uses open source internally? Maybe what things uh, what things are is Google doing? I mean, if you can share that. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean we use open source everywhere. I mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's you know libraries that enable functionality anywhere across the product line to uh, kernels, uh, mm -hmm. you know it's funny if you measure things in say size of distributions, mm -hmm. uh, you know between you know Chrome OS and Android and Google TV and Google Fiber and Google Glass and all these other things. I mean we have something like nine Ubuntu sized distributions at Google that we maintain now uh, and have created, uh, and then we have other distribution. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, forks in some ways where we take like a distribution like Ubuntu, make it work on our, our, our network. Uh, and so we both use code in the creation of our services. We also use uh, platforms and the rest. So we just use it vastly, you know. And it's one of the reasons why we feel like we have an obligation uh, to be there for open source, whether it's through these organizations or through funding work like the Summer Code or by releasing source code, which is the purest way of taking part. So I have to ask, you brought up Google Glass. Sure. Now, I have gotten... I, I you're wearing one. Now. Yeah, I am. Uh, are so you, are, you, are you recording right now? Not on the glass. Because there's a symbol now. You go like this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, so I actually, I, I get nonstop flack for wearing glass anytime I, I conduct an interview, right? Oh, okay. And I just decided if I'm interviewing somebody from Google, it's only appropriate to wear glass, right? Sure. Yeah. You'd have to. Well, I don't know if you'd have to, but... Well, don't you feel a little awkward not having glass on? Uh, not really. I'm. I, so the thing is about. Uh, I recently got LASIK, so I wore glasses for years, sure. and so I sort of enjoying the feeling of not having to wear glasses uh, yeah, sure. for the first time in 41 years of uh -huh. my life. Well, I don't. I don't think I wore glasses as an infant. So, 39 years, right? But um, 
you know, so it's been, it's, it, I, I like not wearing it, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's not because I don't like glass, mm-hmm. but I think it's fine that you're wearing it. I mean, yeah. has do other people like it in your, your junk about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I hear about it constantly, but I, I guess, um, do they think it's duplicative because you're recording here and you could be recording there. Why don't you just record from there? Like, uh, you know, did you ever see the new Battlestar Galactica? There's that scene where President Rosalind uh-huh. is uh, is giving her "I'm the President now" speech or whatever, sure. and there's people like wearing like the action cams and the. the, the it was really kind of cool. Yeah. You know? So yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think people just uh, just find it somewhat distracting. Um, I, I sure. I mean, yeah. the world's going to adjust to these kinds of things. You know, no, nobody thinks twice about well, microphone being put in their face, but um, they don't think twice about you know cell phones. They don't think twice right. about these kinds of things. So yeah, we'll get there, or we won't. You know, maybe it'll take longer. Maybe it'll take you know less time. But so, what things is Google doing with it, with um, with wearable computers or small portable electronics that you know that maybe involves open source? I mean, this is. I mean, everyone makes fun of it, but really, it's running Linux, right? No, it's running Linux. It's running actually a fair amount of the Android stack, mm-hmm. um, and so does Android Wear. The you know the watches, you know. I hate to say it, there's a distribution, there's a distribution. There's yeah. a, I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, I just see these things as new distributions, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and we try to have some commonality, not just at the kernel level, but in the case of both class and Android where, you know, they have a lot of commonality with Android, right? Sure. right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's, that's very exciting, you know? Yeah. And, and from a compliance standpoint, it's, it's interesting too because early on in Android's creation, we spent a lot of time in my group making sure that it was very easy to make a compliant Android device, mm-hmm. meaning it would show the right license information when you went to the right, right screen and, mm-hmm. and all the rest. So, for instance, one of the things you can do with the class is you can basically fling a, uh, open up the legal information on my right. phone kind of thing. Right. So you knew where your software come from yeah. and, and what was inside it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, I, I, the myopia that I enjoy at Google is mm-hmm. I look at everything as a compliance issue. I look at everything as a compliance challenge. Sure. Uh, how can I create devices with unusual user interfaces mm-hmm. and still present the information that I need to present? Mm-hmm. And that's always very interesting and, and challenging. Like Chromecast is a great example of this. Right. How do you show legal information on Chromecast? It has no <laughs> buttons. It has no screen until you yeah. plug it into a bigger screen. Mm-hmm. And isn't that bigger screen just another Linux device made by Samsung or LG or whoever? Right. So you go and, like you can get sort of lost in the forest, the labyrinth of sure. licenses and the rest. Um, and so in the case of Chromecast, you basically fling a uh, you can you can in the controlling application mm-hmm. is where you find the legal information. Um, so anyway. Now, now, how do you see how do you see the adoption of of Android as compared to as compared to things like Apple's iOS? I mean, there's there's a lot of people that I see a lot of iPhones here at Oscon, and that kind of surprises yeah. me. Yeah. You know, what 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 if anything is Google doing to try and push Android to get, to be more in the mobile space? I mean, have we overtaken the iOS uh, market share yet? Well, I think that um, you know Sundar mentioned that we were sitting at eighty four percent worldwide market share. Okay. Um, and over a billion devices, mm-hmm. uh, wow. and you know, so we overtook iOS a long time ago. Okay. Um, and the thing is, though, I don't really care. Yeah. You know, I, when I look at iOS, uh, you know, I, I look at the applications that we shipped on it mm-hmm. and the functionality that Google brings to the the Apple platform, and I, I'm actually really proud of that. So, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of open source in that platform too, not just sure. in our applications, but the way that Apple uses open source. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, they don't share as much of that back, although their presence in the LLVM project has been incredible, right? Um, so, you know, I, I have mixed feelings simply from an open source perspective, right. but from a computational perspective, it's it's an interesting device, right? Sure. Um, 
but yeah, Android though, it's just a whole different world. I mean, mm -hmm. the thing about the billion devices that Sundar mentioned at uh, Google I.O. during his keynote that a lot of people sort of didn't parse was that he was just talking about the devices that register with Google, mm -hmm. you know? That's not counting the hundreds of millions of other devices that ship in, in fractional shares mm -hmm. from Chi you know, Chinese factories, you know, the Amazon Kindle Fire. Mm -hmm. Those things are all Android too. Right. And right. it's like, you know, this is how you know that Android is really open source. Yeah. This is how you know that Chromium is really open source because other people ship it. Right. And we're not going, oh, no, you can't ship it, you know, because we're not that company. We really shipped it under a real open source license that people could use. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of cool, you know. Now, now, do you think that, that providing that level of freedom also uh, provides the ability for companies to abuse it? So, for example, when I bought my Verizon Samsung phone, uh -huh. I have a lot of Verizon apps. I have a lot of stuff I didn't really want on the phone that isn't really part of the Android experience. It's just Verizon wanted that stuff on there. Yeah. And, the, and, and, and the ability for those OEMs to modify uh -huh. that operating system could be seen as a detraction for some users, right? Yeah, um, I guess. I mean, I hate to say it, um, but that's a problem winners have. Mm -hmm. You know, you know your platform's winning when you have those kinds of problems. Fragmentation is a problem winners have, okay. and and I think that open source was so used to losing, mm -hmm. losing the desktop, losing this, losing yeah. that. Even mm -hmm. though we had you know done such a great job winning in the server, mm -hmm. um, that you know feeling the win in a consumer market felt like betrayal for some people. Um, sure. And the thing is, if you look at the the Verizon builds, if you look at the you know, it's funny actually I. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm betraying my people, but mm -hmm. I actually prefer the Moto X build to the oh, Stock okay. Nexus build right now sure. because it has this really cool feature where you can shake it and take a picture. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to worry about unlocking it in other ways. So I can whip it out of my pocket while shaking like, uh, you know, like I'm having a seizure. But uh, it's fine, though. And then I can take my picture really fast. Mm -hmm. And I really like that feature. And yeah. I really like the uh, the Bluetooth trust feature in the Moto X. Mm -hmm. And those are things that Motorola brought to it. And Motorola is not part of Google anymore, so I'm not just kissing corporate right. butt here. Right. Right. Uh, and and I think that it's not wrong to try to excel by adding new things to mm -hmm. an operating system. Now, mm -hmm. I would hope, I would love if those were open source and brought back into the platform, uh, or they were available through an app or, or whatever. Um, and, and and that brings its own challenges, right? Uh, I I would hope, and I would I would think that the Verizons and the carriers of the world would endeavor to ensure that those things are secure. When I'm most saddened by that sort of creativity, which normally is very inspiring, inspiring to me, it is, it's, it's really great for me, um, is when they don't follow through on security, when they don't follow through on UI, and that sort of thing. And that's when it's too bad, right? Um, but at the same time, I'd rather see the creativity than not. And, and, it's, and it's the hallmark of a, of a varied and interesting platform that we have it. So, and that's why I'm, I'm also pretty unimpressed by fragmentation arguments and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? You know, in the open source world, yeah. everything's a fork. Every right. time you ship a distribution, every time you ship a program, you're forking it. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're putting a moment in time, yep. and you're sticking with that moment right. until they upgrade again, right. or until they app get update, or you're forking it every time you do that. Mm -hmm. So the measure of us as programmers, or as app developers, or as carriers, or handset manufacturers, mm -hmm. is how we keep up with those updates, how we keep bringing the future of software development to our users, right? right? right. And, and that's why Android's at 84%, right? Is because, no matter what you, th you think about Android, mm -hmm. if you think that it's not as whatever iOS is, mm -hmm. it's, it's always moving forward. Sure. Because everyone is competing mm -hmm. to move it forward all the time. 
and and that's what's great about it, and that's why I love it. So, you know. and, that's how, and that's how we structured it yeah. from the beginning. So was, that was that was Google's design philosophy, is what you're saying? Well, I mean, we released under the Apache license because we wanted carriers, we wanted handset manufacturers, and we wanted other users who we had no way of anticipating to know that they had the chance to use Android in ways they could never use iOS. iOS was never going to get licensed to them in that way. Right. You know? No, no, absolutely not. And, you know, Apple controls the stack from top to bottom, and that's the way they want it. And that's and that's the kind of users they want. They mm-hmm. don't want the kind of users that want to experiment, that want extra functionality. Don't worry how it works. We'll tell you how it works. Or we won't tell you how it works. We'll make it work. You just trust us that it'll work. That's right. That's right. And and obviously, that's fine for the people who want that level of functionality. Um, if you want something different, though, it's very challenging to do that on iOS. You either have to jailbreak or you have to do something else. And in our world, we're saying, well, you know, if you want to go buy some crazy, like, triple SIM phone, right. you know, if that's what works for you, yeah. Android can support that, yeah. you know? And so they'll probably ship Android on that because they're not going to ship Symbian on it. They're not going to ship any of these other things on it. Right. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but back in 2005, 2006, uh, when people were still shipping uh, Windows CE on phones, uh, first of all, they weren't using Windows Mobile because it was 50 cents more a copy. And on Windows CE, they would write their own dialing applications that would support multiple SIMs. And so you'd buy these, these funny... Camera, uh, these funny phones in China and Shenzhen and Beijing and Shanghai and these malls, and they'd be like, "Hey, yeah, no," it, and of course they'd say it's an iPhone. They'd say it's something else, but it, but what it really was was running Windows CE with a custom interface, and it was supporting those crazy Sims and all the rest. Sure. Nowadays, though, they're like, you know what? We didn't have to play any games. We just used Android. Mm-hmm. We made it work, mm-hmm. and here it is. And and that's really freeing, right? I mean, we, Absolutely. you know, uh, uh, Nicholas Charbonnier, the guy who runs the Arm Devices. Uh, blog, you know, he was showing me around Shenzhen. He's like, you know, there's probably about three million people in Shenzhen alone just working on Android. Sure. You know, Android phones, Android tablets, Android devices. Uh-huh. And it's like, that's amazing, you know. And and it's just remarkable. And and I'm really proud that Google is part of that. You know, so. Yeah. Well, the open source community really appreciates having such a strong player in the game, no doubt. Is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, anything that Google's doing or maybe information where somebody could go if they wanted to find out more about Google and open source? Sure. If they just go to, if they type in Google and open source in Google, you know, they'll find us pretty readily. It's just, uh, if they go to uh, developers.google.com slash open source, you'll find our programs, including the Summer of Code and Google Code. And so if any of your, your listeners have college students in their lives or are college students, or if they're uh, 13 to 18 for Google code in you know that's going to hit in the December time frame in you know, November December time frame and you know we want to help people get into open source and, and we have ways of doing that for people 13 through adulthood you know sure. so yeah I would go there well thanks so much for your time we really appreciate having you an extra special thank you to Chris Bona for chatting with us, which was at a very busy moment at OSCON, and the Google booth was one of the popular ones, so we appreciate him taking the time. Uh, I wanted to end a little bit uh, with my thoughts on OSCON. Before I do that, I just wanted to mention, on Linux Unplugged coming up on Tuesday, we'll have more interviews from OSCON as well as a lot of tidbits from my trip and uh, things that we didn't exactly get on camera but still had a lot of amazing conversations, people stopping us in the uh, exo hall or just in, in just walking by in general, a lot of really cool stuff around open source hardware. Hardware, and we got to play with the open source laptop, and uh, we'll talk about that in Linux Unplugged. So stay tuned. We'll have more in that episode. But just as sort of my closing thoughts on OSCON, uh, should you go to OSCON? Here's what I walked away with. Uh, what To me, what OSCON really feels like, and now this is in its 16th year, keep in mind, uh, and I, to, it feels like where businesses come to sort of reorient themselves with the community in a sense. Community goes to see what those businesses are doing with open source, but there's also multiple threads going on at once. There's the open hardware alley I just kind of alluded to, where there's just 
guys there ma- making hardware that just hope to get discovered and maybe collaborate. There's people looking to hire for jobs that just need people who are open source experts. And there's groups and companies like Microsoft who are trying to reestablish themselves with the community with a new name. And, you know, they have very extravagant booth sets up with uh, computers you can sit down and start coding at right away with some of their tools. So it's it's a really wide range of, of what to expect. I would say if you are in the industry, if you're in IT, if you're in open source, it's definitely, definitely worth considering, um, especially if it's a work, if it's a work expense, because the tickets can be a little expensive if you want the whole thing. Uh, if you're strictly a community person, it might not be the event for you unless you're kind of curious to see how the business side interacts, because there is a fair amount of all of that at OSCON. Plus, Portland's a pretty great place to go for me. I was able to travel via train, which was Awesome. I'll tell you more about that in Linux Unplugged. Had Wi-Fi the whole way there. So it was a pretty good trip overall. Pretty exciting. And it was a pretty good uh, couple of days down in Portland, Oregon. And thanks to everybody who stopped and said hi. It was great to meet a lot of you. Great to shake a lot of hands, too. I don't think I got any plague either. So that's pretty good. I think that's overall a win. I say OSCON 2014 was a success. Don't forget to check Linux Unplugged out on Tuesday for even more from OSCON, some tidbits about the trip as well, and a few other things. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But hey, Matt. Yes. Uh, before we go, we got some emails, and I also went and grabbed the uh, Zalman Ooh. drive that I didn't have during the pick segment. So here it is Sweet. in its brushed metal goodness. This is You can see the little screen there, and then uh, I don't have it uh, screwed in yet, but it does come with screws and stuff. Oh, that's this handy. This top pulls out, and that's where the drive goes in. It kind of slides in nice yeah. and tight. It's, it's uh, got a nice glide to it. It has a very solid yeah, state and feel. It's just real easy to add and replace oh, drives awesome. as you need them. It just snaps right in there. And, you know, I think what I like is that brushed chrome feel. Yeah, it's got a real nice uh, uh, solid feel. Mm-hmm. Oops, put it in backwards. Yeah. It's got a really nice solid feeling to it. And you can see here on the side there's a, 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 a little jog dial. That's where you, you go oh, through yeah. the different ISOs. And, and that uh, then displays on the uh, little little screen there, yeah. and then you push down, and it shows a little CD icon, and that means it's now emulating a CD-ROM drive. That is very and, uh, cool. With that ISO, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like that a lot. All right, Matt. Okay. Well, we got a couple of bits of feedback to get to before we run. Uh, first All one right. came in via the subreddit from uh, Div8874. He says, uh, he says, I'm working to redesign my to-do list and note-taking methods, and it occurred to me that maybe uh, Chris and Matt's workflow might make a really good segment or topic for a future so- for a show. Mm. For example, how do you guys manage your to-do list, journals, etc.? Am I crazy is there something i could be doing did you talk about this in a show number do you have any to do apps uh, you use, i Matt? did and i can't remember what it was because i'm so bad at this uh, yeah um uh, geez what's that one that used to run off of dropbox it, it like stored in dropbox and i can't for the life of me think what the hell it is um ugh, i can't I'm, remember i'm forgetting too because there's a there's a task app that i've used yeah. it's not like super perfect but it's not bad i i'd have to look, i'd have to go home and see it but yeah there, there's a number of them out there i don't have a real love or any specific my biggest problem and what ends up happening and this is the problem is I end up using Google Calendar with nag mode yeah. to where it just yeah. beeps at me like constantly yeah. until I just tell it to leave me alone. Yeah. Um, that's essentially what I'm doing now. It's not effective. I had another app that I was really excited about, but unfortunately I put so many to-do tasks into it that I just kind of said, oh, that's hard. Springseed is so, a great... Uh, spring- Nitro, yes. Nitro, yes, yes. Nitro, that's what it was. Thank you, yep. KB. So Nitro's a good one. Springseed is a good one if you need notes more than just yeah. to-do. If you need just straight-up to-do and you're like me and you prefer text... To do dot text. Yeah, it's made by Gina Trapani, and you can just have it write text files to a mm. Dropbox or BitTorrent sync folder, and then it ties right in with um, Android apps. There's also oh, yeah. a, a command line app, so you could just like if you have if you have Quake, you could always just have Quake running with a, with a to do dot text. That's kind of cool. And then here's a GNOME extension. So like, uh, so mm. I could do uh, remember. 
to record the foe. Right. And I hit enter, and now that is a to-do file. It syncs to over my... So you can see now my Dropbox just okay. synced up, too. And now I have remember to do the foe in oh, my drop-down. Nice. There's also a text yeah. file. And on my Android app, that's, that's also now an entry. It's not using any crazy sync engine. Right. It's just using Dropbox. And I can mark it as complete right there. I can say... That's interesting. You know, whatever. I can I can yeah. change it. I can also just go and be like, ah, I'm never going to do that. I'll just delete right, it. And you, right. can, you can delete the task, too. I like that. And that's actually what drew me to Nitro initially, is the fact that I could actually have an Android app as well as a desktop app and if i'd actually ever use it effectively i can have i can have lists of tasks i can prioritize that was a big thing for me because i have a lot of things that are kind of like someday yeah. um and you know and I've, and I've actually used a mailbox equivalent to this i think it's called mailbox actually i um, will link so. to the uh to do.txt in yeah. the show notes of course you can't go the you can't go there in chrome anymore because they no, deprecated no. the netscape plugin that's, but you have to go there in great. firefox but yeah. i'll put a link to this in the feedback segment so if you want to do to do.txt in your gnome browser or go to to do text.com to do text.com and you mentioned that also works on Android? Works on pretty much every OS because yeah. you just need a client that reads the text file format, and the text file format is really straightforward. TXT, um, and there's also, like I mentioned earlier, command line. You, you know, you can just run them in your Bash shell okay. and uh, just okay. have it persistent and just add stuff to it. I might check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like Nitro. It's just I, I kind of made it more it needed to be. So. Yeah, here is uh, – I'll show you. Here's the Android app. So, here's the, so you can see on the Android side, it just reads your text file and then displays the list right there. It's really that straightforward. Work. It's really straightforward. Oh, and you know, yeah, because I, I mean, I have some things I want the nag for, but some stuff I don't necessarily want to be nagged about. Yeah. I just want to have a list. Another route to go is there's ways to integrate uh, Thunderbird, like through Lightning, oh, yeah. uh, or Used Evolution with your uh, with your Google Tasks. So if you're a Google Mail user and you use Google Tasks, you can right. uh, you can use that too. Yeah, for some of my uh, one of my gigs that has a, an Exchange server going on, I used to use Evolution. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pikavin writes in with a really cool 3D animated trailer made in India entirely mm. using open source software uh, through and through. It's it's really cool. It's, it's I'll play a little bit for you. Right, you cool. guys, it's it's not. I don't think it's. We don't really need to watch much of it in the show, but yeah. it's it's visually impressive. So I'll play a little bit of you. And what's neat about it is all open source, top to bottom. Look at that. Oh my god! Doesn't that look pro? Whoa! In a world. I know, right? Where the boy pushes the girl on the swing. Where open source tools can create a universe. The man One the team made a trailer. Look at that. A hero will arise. All open source software, top to bottom. That is so cool. So you know what, Matt? <laughs> It's getting there. It's getting there. You know, we have we definitely have our rough spots. That's cool. It's getting there. That's so cool. Go over to Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting if you'd like to see uh, photos from our trip. Hey, check that out. I got my hands oh, on the uh, dude, that is cool. open source hardware right there, Stegography machine. Oh, my God. Um, really? That's a, uh, a wood laptop where, you know, where you build oh, and wow. assemble the parts yourself. We got a chance to stop by the Red Hat booth. We'll be featuring that interview and Linux Unplugged on Tuesday. This is a shot of me back in the hotel room, uh, importing the, all the footage we got. It's like, all right, I got to get all this off the camera. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we had some. We had, there's the Fedora booth right there, rocking. Uh, yeah. It's funny because at the Fedora booth, they're mainly talking about CentOS. That tells right. me. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, they're excited about the new product, and that's honestly, I think the fact they have the foresight to do that is smart. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Pretty, here's this new thing we got. Check it out. You know. Pretty neat. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's new to them, right? And Absolutely. I got, here's some that's of my it. swag that I picked up. Uh, so uh, Instagram.com slash Broadcasting. if you'd like to see some of the pictures from our OSCON trip. Yep. 
And really, really big thank you to Noah for doing those interviews. Oh, definitely. Uh, Eric and I were there, but you know, Noah's so great at it. We were able to walk around and get things done while Noah was banging out those That's interviews. Right. It was really kind of awesome. And a special thank you to Eric, too, for manning the camera nice. and uh, being a wig man while we were down there picking up ladies. What? <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, uh... <laughs> ladies. Hey, Matt, uh, what have you been up to? You got any new writings people could go I read? I do. Uh, we're doing some, uh, basically, this is kind of targeting newbies and also people that are just kind of chopping around for a new browser. These are browsers that I personally believe are the best. Nice. And I did include, wait for it, Opera. I Hello. know that may surprise a lot of you for a number of reasons, but I thought Opera deserved a mention. Sure. There are some browsers in there that I did not mention. That's based on my personal experience. I wasn't real fond of them. So the ones I mentioned, check them out. They're good. Yeah. And if you know somebody switching to Linux and oh, they're yeah. like, um, well, on Windows, I That's use it. Internet Explorer. What should I use? <laughs> exactly. Really? That is a serious yeah. problem. I'm not even making fun of these people. They're in this spot. And a case point. Here's an example. You want to get on eBay. Uh, you want to do that in right. Chromium? Have a good time listing things. It'll be fun for you. It'll oh, suck. yeah? It, it sucks. sucks? It does not work. I'm not a big eBay person. You got a Firefox so. at. Well, I, you know, kind of out of necessity, I've kind of become one. But, sure. Um, yeah, so it's like, all right, you know, check that out. And uh, it's worth looking yeah, at. Yeah, that's so much words, though. What if I wanted to watch something with my eyeballs? If you want to uh, listen to me making uh, crude and disgusting noises, representing a little meat boy trying to rescue his girlfriend, um, you should check out our latest video. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah. Years and years of practice. YouTube.com slash Geek and the Gamer. Uh, you guys were just playing a little uh, Meat Boy. We're really he, really into the Meat Boy. Absolutely. Dylan loves... It's a little gruesome, but Dylan loves Super Meat Boy, too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. it's Geek and the Gamer. Yeah, all right. So yep. uh, YouTube.com slash Geek and the Gamer. Go check it out, guys. And also a special plug for uh, Linux Unplugged. Mm-hmm. Going to plug Unplugged. Uh, episode 50, we did a retro look back at uh, Linux and five years ago. Go, what were big controversies? That was kind of fun. And uh, in uh, 51, we'll have more interviews as well as some anecdotes from our trip and some of the extra little goodies that just, I mean, this show was already too big, so I couldn't pack it all into right. this episode. It's like, uh. And so 51 is going to have more goodies from Oscon as well as some other topics. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a big show on Tuesday. So if you'd like to join us live, you can. We do Linux Unplugged Tuesdays, 2 p.m. Pacific over at jblive.tv. Yep. But find out That's all it. of our live shows, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, because I don't know if you knew this. Newsflash. Linux Action Show is also live on a Sunday. It is. 10 a.m. You know, I think we're live right now. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. Anarchy. Go over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your time zone. So that way you can join us. Hang on our chat room. There's a lot more show. I started this show about an hour before we even went on, like, officially (laughs) went on air playing video games and stuff. Yeah, I come in and he's all pew, 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 pew. Yeah, man. Hey, I got to wake up a little bit. Some people try coffee. I try Race the Sun. It works. It works. Gets the brain juices. You know what's awesome about Race the Sun? Tons of really good Steam Workshop download levels that are oh, yeah. really fun. So you get it for the you get it for the built-in games, and then you can download the community games. I like awesome. the expandability. That's cool. We'd also like to get your emails. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose Linux Action Show from the drop-down, or even better, start a thread in our subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. That's also where you can submit stories, vote them up or down to give us an idea of what you want to see. And if you still, at this point, don't have enough show, join me tomorrow for Tech Talk Today, 9 a.m. noon Eastern, jblive.tv, a daily technology talk show from a Linux user's perspective, Monday through Thursday. Boom, there it is. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next week. There is no HTML5 video. There is no... I like that HTML5 video is still a thing in our... Yeah. Because, you know, somebody just... Can somebody... Uh, can, some, can somebody give me a one-sentence definition of what HTML5 video is to them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could I, like, can I see that? Well, see, HTML5, HTML5 video is um well it's a it's a video embed 
element. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh-huh. Plus, audio's our buddy. Uh-huh. We, you know, we, you take him out for beers, he'll be all right. Actually, what I've done, you might find Get this interesting, out. is I, uh, because I run Arch, uh, I ripped out all of Pulse Audio completely, and then uh, using a wine infrastructure uh, mesh, yeah. I have actually moved over the Windows 7. Let's be honest, not the Windows 8, because it's just too much work. Ugh, the God. Windows 7 sound stack, I'm I'm uh, emulating Windows device drivers. I've patched the Linux kernel to have a, a special uh, wine API driver interface. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in user space, I'm running all of the software. I've got my Windows software mixer all powered by wine. Of course, it only works for 32-bit apps applications right now but i'm pretty sure in about a year i'll get it working for 64 <laughs> sound works great oh, now man oh yeah sound there works great go. now